So that song is R.E.M.'s This is the End of the World as We Know It. It's from 1987. Okay. There's like, I won't, I won't, make, I won't make people raise their hand. Um, I didn't know what that song meant in 1987, and I would still say I'm not really sure what that song means today. Okay. Um, I know it's fast-paced. I know it's chaotic, but it perfectly captures to me how much noise there is in our culture and the frenetic pace of life and how everyone's making predictions about when the world's going to end. Um, and so I think that's a, it's a helpful song for thinking about this message today, which is about the end of the world and what you're going to do if it's the end of the world. So I just want you to take a minute, and I want you to think about this question. Um, if the world was going to end in 24 hours, okay, I'm going to give you a very precise time frame. If the world was going to end in 24 hours, what would you do? I want you to hold on to that thought. I want you to hold that thought. Just think about what would you do if the world were to end in 24 hours? What are some of the activities that you would participate in? Think about that, okay? And uh, we are in the book of Mark, and we are going to be talking about this chapter 13. We've spent, we were in the book of Mark last week. We, we've been in this uh, series for some time. Um, and last week, we talked about what it means for the temple to be destroyed. And Jesus is continuing these predictions about what's going to happen to the temple and what's going to happen in the last days. Um, and so if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Mark chapter 13. Um, and I want to state that there are so many interpretations of this passage. It is very difficult to find agreement among Christians on what to do with this. Okay. And so what I'd like to do today is just recognize the challenges of interpreting um, these scriptures. And the, the way that I approached it last week was to take the narrowest possible audience, and that's the four disciples whom Jesus was talking to, Peter, James, and John. Peter, James, John, and Andrew. Um, and that's his inner circle plus Andrew. Um, and that uh, the message that Jesus was giving was specifically to them and for the most part, the destruction of the temple has been fulfilled. So there's an aspect that what was happening that Jesus was predicting has been fulfilled already in 70 AD. And now we're going to transition as we go through this chapter to parts of it that have not been fulfilled yet. But the whole context of this section is that uh, Jesus has been in the temple since chapter, the end of chapter 10 or so, or ch chapter 11. Um, ch and then chapter 11, he's been in the temple um, the Pharisees and scribes and chief priests have been attacking him and accusing him. Um, and he's been defending himself, but also kind of turning it back towards them. And he told a parable about how the temple, the leadership of the temple will be changed over. Because the temple, which is meant to be free access to God, the leaders have not been behaving in a way to open up access. And so now we're into this section, and I'm going to continue reading. Okay, I'm, I'm going to read from Mark 13, verse 24. And this is after his prediction about the destruction of the temple. So Jesus says, But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And, they, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Okay, so we're going to start with chunk by chunk. So we're going to stop there. We're going to pause there for now, 24 to 27. I'm going to read to the end of the chapter today. Um, but what I want to do is just first examine what's going on here. The disciples would have probably understood this section as one extended event. 
they wouldn't have this understanding that Jesus would arrive in phases. Because at this point, Jesus hasn't yet been arrested. He hasn't been crucified. Um, it's about to. This is the last week of Jesus's life, the last couple days. And so there's uh, what they would have understood is, you know, Jesus, you're, at some point you're going to be kicking booty here. Something, something crazy is going to happen. You're going to take over the kingdom for Israel, and you're going to reign. Um, and Jesus is saying, well, yes, that will happen, because this reference he's talking about um, is about, it sounds like, the end of the world. And so let's just talk about some of the terms that he uses and try to define them. One term that he uses here is this idea of the elect, okay, the elect. And what does the elect mean? Well, previously in this passage, it talks about those whom God has chosen. Okay, so the people whom God has chosen, and what we mean by that is believers, followers of Jesus, those are whom are God's elect. Because when you become a follower of Jesus, even though you experience it as your own choice, when you become a follower of Jesus, because of God's sovereign will, he actually is the one who chooses you. So in Ephesians, it talks about that, that God chose us from the beginning of time. That's what it means to be the elect, that God chooses you. And so the, uh, the New Testament consistently speaks of eternal life as a present reality. And so um, this term elect isn't used everywhere. You won't see it used everywhere. Um, in fact, oftentimes it's used to describe the end, the end of the age, the end of an age. Um, and so what I think is important here <clears throat> is that we may often talk in terms of uh, those, who are, those who identify as Christians, but we don't necessarily say in terms of those who are, are elect because only God knows who the elect are. And we certainly can make guesses, but if God chooses, God is the one who has knowledge of it. And we're gonna see some examples of what God knows and what we don't know um, in later on in this passage. <clears throat> so I've been saying so far that verses one through 23 have been fulfilled, but what about the rest of this chapter? There seems to be kind of a transition in verse 24, because it says those days. And that could be a backward reference to the destruction of the temple, but it also could be a forward reference to another time. And also, I want to remark, and, and we study these passages ahead of time in our life groups, and part of the rules for studying this, these passages is we don't reference other, pass, other verses in the Bible. However, when you get to something apocalyptic like this, um, it is actually important to be able to reference other sections of the Bible. So um, there are exceptions to the rule, um, so this is the reference. This is Isaiah 13. This comes from Isaiah 13, 9 and 10, where it says, Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. So the imagery in Isaiah 13 is very similar in terms of darkness, the moon not shedding light. It's very similar. Um, and the context of Isaiah 13 is that there's going to be judgment poured out. And so the, the way we can read, the way we can help interpret what's going on in Mark 13 with the sun being darkened and the moon not giving its light is this is Jesus's return and he's coming to judge. The master of the house, which is going to be an image we're going to see later, is coming back and he's going to judge. And the, the kindness and gentleness that we've experienced from Jesus so far uh, it'll be different. It's going to look different, okay? Um, and he talks about cruelty and wrath and fierce anger um, because he will be calling humanity to account, okay? All the consequences and actions, both of our behaviors and of our thoughts, will be called to account. And so um, that imagery 
we think about judgment, and there's a finality to it. And again, there's, it seems different from the preceding events. But before I get too far, again, what I want to emphasize here is that this, the, the disciples were the primary audience for this. And so we need to think of them first in, in recognizing that they didn't have the concept of a second coming. And so where Jesus was transfigured back in Mark 10, the, thing, the way I want you to think about the Son of Man being um, completely, uh, you know, completely revealed is that during the transfiguration in Mark chapter 10, Jesus is glowing, right? He's full of power and glory, right? And, and when, you he, when you see here, Jesus coming back in power and glory back in verse 26, and so then the question is, what is, it, what is it then how we experience Jesus, how the disciples experience Jesus? Well, I think one way to think about Jesus in human form is you think about a passage like Philippians 2, where it says that Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself. Okay? And so one metaphor, and you know, the Bible is full of metaphors, so I'm going to try to do maybe a more modern metaphor— is the, the human Jesus we saw, and this is, I can already think of ways in which this metaphor fails, but please go with me. Um, Jesus in human form is like the trial version of a software, okay? When you, when you download a trial version of the software, okay, let's say it's a, it's a, a, a scanning utility, right? Um, it'll only let you scan like one page, for instance, and then you can send it to like one recipient, right? And it's only like max one megabyte which is like nothing, right? And so the trial version of the software, even though it contains everything that it needs, all those, the features of the software are not fully unlocked. So you don't get to see all the different powers that the software can perform, the full version can. And so when you think about Jesus in human form, what we're seeing is this trial version where most of his features have not been unlocked, okay? You don't get to see fully what he can do. But at the end of the age, when Jesus, when the Son of Man returns in the clouds, and it says he returns with power and glory, everything's unlocked, okay? Everything's unlocked, and you get to fully appreciate all the features and powers that he has, and he will exercise those powers. They will be fully functional on our behalf and on his behalf. And so that's one way to understand what it means for the Son of Man to come in clouds with power and glory. So let me read this next section. This is 28 to 31. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Okay, I want you to notice that uh, there's, another, there's another agricultural metaphor. We've been talking about fig trees from before as he talked about the temple. Now he's got this different message, and he's saying there's something about timing with this message. Okay, there's something about timing with this message, um, with, this, uh, with this event that's going to happen, and that you should be able to tell based on what a fig tree does um, when this branch becomes tender and put out its leaves, you know summer is near. And so the, the anticipation, it's towards summer. And then it says, so also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near, probably referring to the Son of Man, at the very gates. And then it says something crazy. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And what's difficult to interpret here is what he means by generation. 
What does generation mean? Does it mean the disciples right then? Or does it mean future generations? Or does it mean like the generation of this age? And again, I think this is difficult to interpret. I think 1 through 23 reference the disciples. That's that generation. So they get to see the destruction of the temple. But we have not yet seen Jesus return yet. And that's the part that's waiting. And then in verse 31, it says, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Okay, what's the idea there? Okay, heavens and earth will pass away. Um, In the very beginning, in Genesis 1, it says God created the heavens and the earth. Now, did he mean the eternal realm that we dwell with God? Probably not. Heavens was understood as when you look up into the sky, those are the heavens. It's like the visible, heavens and earth represent the visible universe. So when Jesus says heavens and earth will pass away, what he means is the visible universe that you experience today, that's going away. That's ending. But his words will not pass away. Okay, so um, what I mentioned earlier was to carry this thought. And I'm going to talk about this idea of, what, of thinking about the end of the world, right? So he, what he's saying is the, the end of the world as we know it is going to happen. And I asked you in a few minutes ago, would you think about what would happen if you had 24 hours before the world ended? Okay? And so what I want you to do is I want you to find someone next to you, preferably not your spouse, um, find someone next to you and um, ask them, what are you going to do with your 24 hours? What's one thing you want to do? Because there may be some things you may not want to share that you're going to do in those 24 hours. That's fine. Pick one thing that you can share publicly with another, with another stranger that you're going to do in those 24 hours. Okay? So take one minute and do that. So I'm curious, um, what were some ideas that people had? This, is, uh, this might become useful, right? So what are some, what are some ideas What are some ideas that you heard? Spending time with friends and family. Got it. Any other ideas? Disneyland. Disneyland. All right. I will definitely not do that. Um, Any other ideas? Any other ideas? I'm thinking about this. Serving the least of these. Yeah, we're going to talk about that. Thanks, Rod. Watching the cheesiest uh, Hallmark movie. Wow. I never would have thought of that. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Darius. Yeah, you could, you could end on the absolute worst because nothing after that is going to be better. I, I got it. Thank you. So as, as you think about this, I think what, one of the things that is so helpful about this exercise is that when you don't have much time, and, it, and 24 hours really isn't, it's barely anything, right? When you don't have much time, it kind of crystallizes everything for you, and it helps you to think about our, a plan. And one of the aspects of our culture is that we are so obsessed with time. Everything that we do is ordered around time. Um, if things are delayed, like public transit, we get upset. If someone's flight is delayed, we say to them, oh man, I'm so sorry you had to experience the hardship of a delayed flight, because that's like the worst thing, because you can make money, but you can't make more time. Um, and we say things like, well, those are, those are five minutes that you're never getting back, because we think of time, again, as more precious than money. And then we're not exempt from this as Christians, when we think about prayer, when we ask someone, well, how long do you pray? We think about how long you're supposed to pray. When it comes to Bible reading, we think, how long are you supposed to read the Bible? When you think about vocation and your job, we think, how long are you supposed to work? How many hours a week do you work? And how many hours a week represent overwork? And how many hours represent underwork? And when you share the gospel, as we're learning today, It's how fast can you share it? How many minutes can you share it in? Because people's attention span is short. And when we think about videos, the most popular videos, 
um, public uh, people notwithstanding here, uh, the most popular leaders are the ones that are the shortest because people's attention spans are so brief. We don't have enough time. When you drive, you even get estimates on how long it takes to get there. And I bet you, if you're anything like me, you have a contest with yourself to beat the estimated time because it's all a competition in terms of how we can value and obsess over our time. And it goes even more than that. Um, this past Friday, I was listening to, I was relaxing, and I'm not sure why I listened to a financial podcast or, or read finance news um, in order to relax. Um, but I was doing that, and invariably, financial news has like two kinds of things going on. One is like doom. Everything's about doom and predictions, right? Predictions of doom. They're basically, that's what it is, right? The predictions of doom, um, and then trying to help you calm down from the predictions of doom. So there's basically like two things going on in finance. Um, and of course, right now, the main question for finance is like, when is inflation going to go down? Like, that's pretty much what everyone's obsessed about. Well, why inflation's happening and when inflation's going down? Um, and of course, that affects how we think about time, right? Because we're like, man, right now, pho, a bowl of pho used to cost like $10. Now a bowl of pho is like $17, right? It's like $20. Like, I think the, having pho is like a great barometer of inflation, right? So, um, but we're all obsessed because the question is, who can pinpoint when prices will go back down, right? Because we, we need to know not just within a year, we need to know within months of when that's going to happen because we're so obsessed about time. And so what, the way I want to approach this text is to recognize what would the disciples and people in the ancient Near East have understood time in this regard? How would they have experienced this? What, what does near even mean? What does like summer is coming? And what does like, in verse 18, pray that it wouldn't happen in winter. Like, how does that make any sense? How does that make a sense in a world that's obsessed with time and precision? And so let me propose that as we read this, what Jesus is giving us in this parable about the fig tree is he's kind of giving us this view of time that we don't have in our culture. He's saying that there's something sacred about time and that it's imprecise and it's nonlinear. Okay, and those are all related. That's sacred, it's imprecise, and it's nonlinear. So the first thing I want you to notice, he, he gives an agricultural metaphor. He's talking about what, the way fig trees work. I don't know anything about fig trees. I just know it's agricultural. And the, the, the thing about fig trees and waiting for them in season or anything with agriculture is that most things in agriculture are outside of a person's control. They're outside of a farmer's control. Why is it outside of control? Because it's dependent on the weather. Everything's weather dependent. The weather influences everything. And what's fascinating about this is we actually understand that as modern people. Because after 2,000 years of technology, you know the best thing we can do as far as weather predictions is about seven days. Okay, we can predict about with a high degree of accuracy what's going to happen in seven days. Seven days is nothing. Okay, seven days is not going to tell you when inflation is going to end. Seven days is not going to tell you about crop prices. It's, gonna, it's not going to tell you anything. And yet, the idea of being, something being sacred is it's outside of our control. And the way we obsess over time is as if we think it's within our control because we're constantly dividing it up and measuring it and parceling it out. And so could I propose that one of the, the essences about time is that it's outside of our control and that ultimately it's God that has influence over it. God is the one who has ultimate influence. And that, that also means God can actually bend and kind of shape and give us an experience of time that goes beyond, what's what, that goes beyond the linear so, for example, there's something about Good Friday 2021 that is closer, that is nearer to the crucifixion of Jesus than summer 1975 or summer 1900. 
Okay, do you, do, you see, do you hear what I'm saying? Like, there's something about the sacredness of time where God can make something happen, like God can enter into time and, and slow things down because we all have those experiences where either, either on a mountaintop or at a retreat or even worshiping God where time slows down. And there's something sacred about what happens in that moment when God intervenes into time and it slows down. And on the other hand, there are other times when you just, especially as you get older, the years just seem to accelerate. They just go faster and faster because that's this idea of sacredness of time. And we've lost that in our secular age, in our secular culture. The other aspect of time um, that's probably the, the most significant in terms of sacred, that God has ultimate control over it, is that God in his sovereignty doesn't just want to control time. He actually invites us in to collaborate with him. And I'm going to speak on this more as we get later to the section, but let me remind you one more time. In verse 18, it says, pray that it might not come in winter. Pray that it might not come in winter. And so God invites us to be able to say, hey, you know what? If time is sacred and I have ultimate control over it, I actually want to trust my people with collaboration. I want, I want to collaborate with you on the timing of when this will occur. And that's what prayer is. It's collaborating with God. Now, God has a plan. He's going to accomplish his plan. But one of the majesties of his plan is that he wants to involve us. And so in verse 18, when it says, he, he's, he says, pray that it does not come in winter, he actually wants us to influence the timing of what happens. And for us, we want the precise answer of what's going to happen. And yet God's like, he's just performing his calculations. He's doing his thing. And he invites us to participate with it. It's more complicated, more complex than we can understand, and yet the majesty of it is he invites us to be part of it. And it's not a precise science. So let me keep reading 32 through 37. But concerning that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Now, as I said, in a world obsessed with timing, with predictions and forecasts and knowledge and data and charts and statistics and extrapolation and empirical evidence, Jesus says, nobody knows. Nobody knows, including him. He's, he's still like trial version here, right? Or part of his trial version, right? So he doesn't know everything that's going to happen. Only the Father knows. The only one who knows is God. And so what does that mean for us? It means that it's not your job to have this knowledge. You don't actually need this knowledge and so the way I think about it, I have a couple different ways in thinking about when Jesus is going to return, okay? And what it means for us to be on guard, okay? Because it says be on guard and then also says stay awake. And so I have a couple, um, again, metaphors for thinking about what it means to stay awake. The first is I'm, I like to watch um, these climbing movies, okay? There's one recently came out called The Alpinist. Um, and so basically when you're about to climb a dangerous peak, um, you, you show up at the base of the mountain and then you essentially, you have to be ready. And then essentially you just wait for the perfect window because you need the, we again, weather conditions. You need the weather conditions to become perfect for you. 
And you cannot predict, again, you cannot predict in advance when the weather will become perfect. And, and also, um, the problem with these mountains, these, these dangerous peaks, is they create their own weather system. And so it's extremely localized. And so the only thing you can do is you just show up and then you just wait, but you need to be ready. You need to be ready. You can make all the plans you want, but you need to be prepared at any given moment to be able to ascend that peak. And so when I think about what it means to be awake, I think what Jesus is saying is you need to be in a state of preparation. You need to be ready when, for Jesus' return. And then Jesus tells a parable. He talks about a man going on a journey who leaves home, puts his servants in charge. And again, every servant has his or her job. It says each with his work and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Now, the thing to understand about the doorkeeper, the doorkeeper has one job. He literally just has one job. All he's got to do is stay awake. And so for a lot of us, for, for us, what that means as a Christian is you just have one job on this earth, and that's follow Jesus. And the reason I preach every Sunday is we just have one job. I'm just encouraging you to do your one job. But let me say, it is so easy to be distracted about it. It is so easy to be distracted from it. So let me give one example. Um, when I was a teenager and I was, I was a latchkey kid, both my parents worked. Um, and I had one job as a high school student. My job was to study. It was very simple. As um, the child of immigrants, that was my only job. And so I'd, I'd, go home, I'd come home. And then I think someone was talking about, oh, someone was talking about this last night. Um, I would come home, and then this is like back when MTV um, had music videos. Well, there was MTV and had music videos. And I would learn to dance by um, watching these music videos, and I would just sit there. I, would just, I wouldn't sit in there. Um, I would just stand in front of the TV and just dance to these videos. Okay, it was super fun. Um, and then for me, the sign of the master's return was the sound of the garage door opening, okay, and my parents coming home. And so the, and the garage door is pretty loud. Someone is right next to the TV. And so right when the garage door opened, that was my sign. I would turn off the TV and I would sprint upstairs and start to study and, and, and pretend I was studying. And I would, I would do my job so that I was ready for the master's return. Okay. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. That is not what Jesus is talking about. If you're caught in that way, like you're done. Like you're, you're kind of done because you forgot to do your job. You forgot to do your job. And as a Christian, like I said, you only have one job, and that's to follow him. Okay, one job is to follow him. And one of the things that I'll confess, and this is going to be the sharing question for today, is how do you feel about Jesus' return? Okay, how do you feel about Jesus' return? And the thing for me is I, I, I'm scared. I think about Jesus coming back, and I have, I have fear um, because it's something that's so foreign to me. It's something that I can't imagine. And I wonder for a lot of us, if that, is that the fear? Because even though um, we can experience things that are like Hallmark movies, right? Even though we can experience like pain or suffering in this world, for us, at least it's familiar, right? It's something that you know about. And to think about Jesus coming back, which is brilliant and amazing, there's just some fear that's associated for me. And I also want to recognize that this world is designed to distract you, okay? It's designed to distract you from what's really important, from the coming king. So one of the aspects that Jesus was addressing as he's in the temple is the, how marvelous the buildings are and how this was the center of Jewish religious life. This was what's familiar and what was important for, uh, for the Jews. And it was going away. And so this is the context that that their job wasn't to, their job as Jews wasn't to promote the, the nation of Israel. That's not their job. 
It's actually to follow the rightful king of the world. And so you may think that your job is to uh, make America a Christian nation, right? And, and certainly there are uh, good believers who want to devote themselves to that. But really, the idea of following Jesus is much greater than reforming anything here on this world, okay? It's much greater to invest your resources in what's temporal. It's to invest it in what's eternal. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. That, what, that's what it means to be focused on your one job. So what I want to do is um, one of the things that Jesus says is stay awake, right? He says, he mentions being, being able to stay awake and he tells the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane, could you please stay awake and could you pray? And so the way in which we can do our job, the way in which we can follow Jesus is to pray. Okay, I'm gonna ask you to pray. And, and so when it says to stay awake, it doesn't mean you shouldn't sleep at all. What it means is we need to devote ourselves to following him. And I'm gonna put up a prayer. And what I want to ask you to do as I put up the prayer is um, I want you to stand with me and I'd like you to pray for the sections. I'd like you to pray out loud the sections that are in bold. So we're gonna do a kind of liturgy. So could you stand with me? So what I'm gonna do is I'll read the first sentence and I'm gonna give you a simple statement. And if this doesn't reflect your heart, you don't have to pray it, okay? You don't have to pray it. But if it does, I'd, I'd invite you to pray it with me because this is the way, this is something I'm learning to be able to look forward with expectancy about the Lord's return. And I wanna ask you um, to also receive this in a, in a posture. You can um, put your hands out with your palms facing up. Lord, help me perceive this world and my life in the light of eternity. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Lord, focus me on the work you have entrusted me with. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Lord, guard me from the distractions and temptations of this life. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Lord, thank you for your patience and forgiveness when I snooze. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Lord, let me look forward to your return. Come, Lord Jesus, come. You may be seated. I want to read in closing this line from Revelation 21, 1 through 4. And it says this. This is about the new heavens and the new earth. Revelation 21, 1 through 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for their former things have passed away. Let's pray together. Lord, while we're on this earth, we live as followers of you as a new creation. Because of your life, death, and resurrection, we have been made new. We are now your beloved. We are holy and blameless in your sight. Lord, we look forward to the day when everything will be a new creation, a new heavens and a new earth. And so, Lord, we await you. 
we look forward with expectancy to your return. Would we stay awake? Would we pray to you in a way where we are looking and longing for, your, for who you are and your return? Thank you for your love for us. We pray this in your name. Amen.